You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. So now we understand we're in the middle of an economic reset. How about a spiritual reset? As I've been talking with uh, many of you, I've been interested in how the current crisis that we're going through as we watch our 401ks just roll back four years and or five and as we uh, struggle with the loss of job and scratch our heads and say, what next? Uh, you're listening to God. And there's an old biblical principle that God speaks to us in the midst of our adversity. And so what about a spiritual reset? What about a growth project? A spiritual growth project in the midst of this adversity? Well, I told you before that uh, all... Uh, Wisdom is plagiarism. It's only stupidity that's original. And uh, so as we look at this question of growth project, we're looking back in time at uh, John Bunyan's great classic called Pilgrim's Progress, which was published in 1678. And in that story, we see that for growth, we have two possible instruments. We could choose a broom or we could choose a cross. The Apostle Paul in the Bible urges us to choose a cross. Let's look at that as we open our Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. I'd like to invite you to stand uh, together as a way of honoring God and His Word. And let's read this text out loud uh, all at once. Find us on page 957 of the Pew Bible, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 15. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you think it's true, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's word. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Pilgrim's Progress is a story of a journey, a pilgrim who moves from what uh, Bunyan calls the city of destruction, because it's going away in favor of a much greater city, to a city called the Celestial City. The main character, the pilgrim, is named Christian. And uh, I told you that early in his journey, he comes to a place called the Interpreter's House. And there are many rooms in the Interpreter's House, each of which contains a lesson for life. And one of the rooms is a parlor. Bunyan tells us it's a great parlor, big room. But the parlor, unfortunately, is covered with a thick blanket of dust. And so to teach his lesson to Christian, the interpreter says, Now let a man with a broom come into the parlor. man brings in a broom and he begins to sweep to try to clean up this parlor. But as he does, it fills with choking clouds of dust. It just gets thicker and thicker. And then the interpreter says, now bring a damsel who has a bucket of water. The damsel, this 
a woman, she comes and she throws water and begins then to clean up the dust. And of course, this water cuts through the dust. And the lesson of it is, the interpreter tells Christian, that the broom is like the law. A list of do's and don'ts to try to straighten our life out. And we can approach our life with a broom and try to clean it up and get straightened out. But more often than not, we simply fill the air with even more dust. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the law provokes us to greater sin. The woman, on the other hand, she represents the gospel. She brings the water, baptism, and sprinkles it. And so cuts the dust, which is sin, and removes. <laughs> Reminded of... Uh, my parents are here today, and uh, we, uh, my father and I, being geniuses that we are, lit the fire without opening the damper. And, of course, the living room, you know, fills with smoke. And we said, no problem, we've got this figured. So we went out of the garage and got the electric leaf blower, opened the windows, and we're blowing this stuff, thinking we are so smart. And my dad swings around. Mom's got a break front with all these china plates that are leaning against, and they just go up into the air like leaves and come crashing down on the ground. And I think, you know, put a broom in my hand. I'm not sure I'd uh, be the best one to clean up my life, uh, frankly. I'm not sure that a, a list of do's and don'ts really gets me out of those things uh, that, that uh, hold me back. The room, the parlor, is uh, no longer functioning its original design, which is to be a place of hospitality, and it's lost its beauty because of all of this dust. If we bring a broom to our lives to restore its design and its beauty, we may find that we clutter and make more of a mess. What will we do to calm our outbursts of anger? What will we do when what feels to us like an addiction to pornography, we just can't stop? What will we do when uh, we know that we want to forgive someone who has really hurt us but just can't find it in our heart, though we say the words over and over, I forgive him? What will we do when we get the sense that our lives are simply a long uh, trudge through self-centeredness and that the only person who really matters to me at the end of the day is myself? Is that a problem that we can solve with a broom? Jesus tells us two stories Two stories of two houses. Kind of an interesting, bizarre stories, really. In the one hand, both of these houses are occupied by what Jesus calls unclean spirits. And on the one hand, one of them, uh, the spirit is displaced. Moved out, sent out, goes hovering over waterless places, we're told. And apparently the house is kind of cleaned up. It's put back in order. But then Jesus says, this spirit who has gone finds seven others who are more evil than itself and comes back into this house and takes occupancy again. It was just displaced. It's a warning there. And in the other story, there is an assurance. Uh, Jesus says in this story, there's actually an armed guard, this uh, spirit. It's a principality and a power. And there it stands, keeping the, uh, the occupier from even going in. And Jesus says, under my ministry, I come and don't displace the spirit, but disarm the spirit. And then return the house to its original function and beauty. So you see, we need Jesus. We need the good news of Jesus Christ to make a difference in our, our lives. Now, this text, uh, Colossians, it's a letter, of course, and the Apostle Paul writes it, most likely uh, from prison in Rome. And the year is A.D. 62. And as Paul sits in the imperial capital, He's visited by a man named Epaphras. 
Epaphras, likely the disciple of Jesus Christ who founded the church in Colossae, which, by the way, is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he comes to Paul to tell him, uh, the good news has flourished in Colossae, but I have a concern. Because there's also a kind of pernicious teaching or teachings there. And we, if we piece it together, the book of Colossians, we see these teachings have something to do with philosophies uh, or uh, human traditions or what Paul calls elemental spirits, uh, probably drawing language from this uh, heresy or these heresies, angelic powers, a uh, lot of do's and don'ts. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. It's very prescriptive. And it, is, it seems that, perhaps in Colossae, People have um, become frustrated with the pace of change in their lives as followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, why else would you turn to some other kinds of ideas and philosophies and practices? We believe in Jesus, we have a cross in our lives, but you know what? I'm just not progressing. I'm just not uh, feeling the liberation that I would expect to feel from a one who has broken the power of death itself. So maybe I need something that would work a little faster. Maybe I need something that seems a bit more practical. Maybe I need something that seems more profound. And so these kinds of ideas come up, and it seems that uh, Colossians have a broom. They've brought something else in to improve their lives, to get themselves out of the fix they're, they're in. But Paul wants them to have a cross. We can all get frustrated over the pace of change in our lives. A story told of a man who comes into a bar and he orders a beer and takes the beer, looks at it and throws it right back in the bartender's face. The bartender towels off and the guy's all embarrassed. Says, I'm really sorry about that. I've got a, a problem with authority and the way you walked over here, you just reminded me of my dad. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> said, no problem. Don't worry about it. The guy comes in the next week, pours him a beer and does the same thing. Throws it right back in his face. And the guy says, you know what? Look, you, you, you've got to fix this problem before you come back in here. This is just not going to work anymore. So the guy goes, okay, you send him to therapy. Six months later, the man comes back, walks in, big smile on his face. You know, his shoulders are hanging easy and two thumbs up. Bartender pours him a beer and the guy throws the beer right in his face. He says, hey, I thought you were better. He says, I am. Now I can do this. I don't feel guilty about it anymore. <laughs> so a lot of times it's easier for us to address the symptoms right, rather than the root problem. But Psalm 38, the psalmist laments his sin. He says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. They weigh like a burden too heavy for me. And what is sin after all? Sin is that thing that excludes us from God. It gets between us and God. And because God is the one who invents life and wants for it to be good, we exclude ourselves from life and the way it should work. I mean, Genesis 1, I've said to you before, God made this and it was good. He made that and it was good. Good, good, good. That's God's intention. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And sin is that thing in our lives that keeps us from that abundance. Well, just like the psalmist, this traveler Christian has a burden on his back. In the story, the allegory that it is, it's physically represented as this huge backpack, a big sack of guilt. And as you read this story, if you're reading along with it, you see that other characters in Pilgrim's Progress do not have burdens on their back, just this poor man Christian. And that's because the, the burden is not sin, the burden is guilt. 
And a Christian becomes aware that he has a sin problem in his life by reading a book in the City of Destruction, which, of course, is the Bible. But after going through the interpreter's house, early in the story, he comes pretty quickly to the place of deliverance. And I want to read to you the story of what happens there at the place of deliverance. Bunyan writes, Christian ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher or a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones, angels, came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment clothing. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, a scroll, which he bid him look on as he ran and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. And so they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. It's the place of deliverance. He comes not to a broom, but to a cross. Blaise Pascal was a great scientist, a mathematician. He was a contemporary of John Bunyan's. Pascal, of course, in France, far more educated and sophisticated than the simple man self-taught John Bunyan. But Pascal said an interesting thing about Jesus, the 17th century. He said, Jesus is a God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Jesus is someone we can approach without pride. Just don't need pride when you're in his presence. And he can, we can humble ourselves without despair in his presence as well. These two things are given to us in two images that the Apostle Paul writes about in Colossians 3. We're going to look at those two things. First of all, the cross frees us from the burden of our pride. It's interesting the way Pascal puts this, that we can come to Jesus without pride. Not we should, but we can there's something about Jesus that enables us to come without pride or arrogance. We can be who we are. Think about what provokes pride in me. I feel most tempted to pride when I expect a certain competency from myself or when I think other people do. 
So this flares up for me when I find myself in this place every time. The uh, tea box of the clubhouse tea, hole number one, right? I mean, all the guys are queued up waiting for their tea time. Everybody else is uh, sipping teas or, or swinging their clubs on the driving range. And I have to stand up in front of everybody and, and hit the golf ball. And I am not a good golfer, you know, so just to hit one forward would be some, an accomplishment for me. There's a certain expectation on the tee box that you're competent. And so it, it, it arouses within me uh, temptation to pr- pride. We oftentimes fool ourselves about our sin. There's a woman who uh, writes to the college president of the university where her son is enrolling as a freshman. And she writes the president this way. She says, Dear Sir... My son has been accepted for admission to your college. Soon he'll be leaving me. I'm writing to ask that you give your personal attention to the selection of his roommate. I want to be sure that his roommate is not the kind of person who uses foul language or tells off-color jokes, smokes, drinks, or chases after girls. I hope you'll understand why I'm appealing to you directly. You see, this is the first time my son will be away from home, except for his three years in the Marine Corps. Oftentimes, we we kid ourselves about who we are and about our brokenness. We don't talk a lot about sin these days, except when we're talking about dessert menus. Uh, James Davidson Hunter says, you know, for us, uh, peanut butter binge and chocolate challenge are sinful. Lying is not. The new measure for sin is caloric. Isn't that true? And yet, when we come to Jesus, we can be who we are. We don't have to bring any competency to him. We're free from pride. So the Apostle Paul says, look, this is the way God expected to receive you. In verse 13, he says, you and we were dead in trespasses. Just dead in trespasses. Totally incompetent, as though we were in in a grave. And and you can understand how he would say this. It's not that they were physically dead or looked bad or anything like that. It's just that... God's picture of life is so great that what we live apart from His grace could only be compared to death. You say, well, as great as this is, could you imagine life with Jesus Christ who is life and who gives life at the cross? The image that we see here in the text, verse 14, look at this with me. Paul says, He forgave us all our trespasses by erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. Erasing the record. Now, there's some technical language in there that refers to a handwritten note like an IOU. First century, if uh, you wanted to um, borrow some money, you would write with your hand a little certificate of debt, and you would sign it at the bottom. Oftentimes, these things had a little clause, which is sort of the default clause. If you don't pay the debt back, you know, what will be the remedy? Paul uses this language and he says it was this sort of a thing was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, you and I know what was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus. And then there was a sign above his head. This sign is called a, a titleus, not a golf ball, by the way. And it's, it's uh, the word we get the English word from for a title. It's a legal document. It's a claim against someone who's being punished. It's that IOU where the... Uh, the default clause is being exercised. The image that Paul wants us to have in Colossae is to say, I want you to see a long list of the, of the uh, ways in which you violated 
God's goodness in your life. Sins of commission, sins of omission. These things are written on this titleist. It's a, it's a piece of wood coated in gypsum and painted. Of course, on Jesus' titleist was written, King of the Jews, in mock. Because there is no king but Caesar. And, and if you claim to be a king, then you deserve to die. And that was the charge against Jesus. That's why he died. But Paul says, that's why they killed him. That's not why he died. The reason he died is so that there could be a, a sign over his head with a list of your sins. Everything you've ever done. Everything you've left undone for your whole life. Not just sins before you say the sinner's prayer, but a lifetime of sins. That sign was nailed to the cross well before you and I were ever born. We can come to the cross without any expectation of our competency. Because he's already listed our brokenness. He already knows. He already knows. And God has erased that list by nailing it to the cross. I could die for my sins and pay the penalty. Paul says the wages of sin is death. Or I can let God nail that list to the cross. And God himself and the Son of God could offer his life for you and for me. And that's what he's done. So Pascal rightly says we can come before Jesus Christ. He's just the sort of one before whom you can come without any sense of pride. If you're like me, when you begin to think about your sins, you immediately want to go the other direction, away from pride into humility, even further than biblical humility, into debasement and discouragement and to say, wow, when I really get a good perception of the things I've done wrong and the twistedness of my heart, then I go the other direction, I despair. But Pascal says, no, Jesus Christ is just the sort of one that you can come to not only without pride, but without despair. And that's the amazing thing. He never gives any ground to despair. He invites us to come with hope. The slew of despond, remember I mentioned, Christian has already passed through that. That's this kind of miry swamp where we have a pity party and we say, I'll never be good enough. I'll never get my marriage together. I'll never learn how to be a proper mom. I'll never stop lying. I'll never get beyond myself. I'll never live with meaning and purpose. And we just sink down into this slew of despond, despair. There's a New Yorker cartoon that has a child and he's presenting his report card to his father. It's got, you know, D's and F's on it. And the kid says, so, you know, what do you think, Dad? Uh, heredity or environment? <laughs> you know? That's a stumper. Uh, and we've all got excuses. We all know why it is that we fail. Sometimes we're very spiritual about it. We say, well, that's just who I am. To be human is to be sinful. I'm human, I'm sinful. And, you know, what, what, what does God expect? I'm a Calvinist. I believe in total depravity, right? So that's just where I expect to live my life. Sinful, broken, selfish. As though God would say, you know, I, I've been working with George for a little while, but I just think I, uh, I've run out of tricks for him, you know? I mean, this is the guy that invented the word redemption. Right? He believes in hope uh, for you and for me. So Paul gives a second image here. Verse 15 says, God the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, triumphing is technical language. In ancient Rome, when Caesar sent his generals out to battle, he would expect them to come back victorious. And if they did, they would prove so by making the enemies of Rome a public example. And the way they did this was through what they called a triumph. They would take the, uh, the king of that distant land and his generals or queen and they would uh, bind them and enslave them, 
rope them up, chain them, with a chain that goes to the leading general's chariot. The victorious Roman general rides in this chariot through a great parade. For us to be like a New York City ticker tape parade. The whole city comes out. They're at the parapets and windows of Rome, the imperial capital. And here comes this uh, enemy who would dare raise his fist against great Rome. And they jeer and they cheer. And when Rome crucifies Jesus Christ, Jesus to them seems like such a small fish they don't even bother. There's no triumph over Jesus. There's just a cross and Golgotha and a sign over his head that sort of mockingly says, here's the king of the Jews. But Paul says, there indeed is a triumph at the cross. It's not a triumph of Rome over Jesus Christ. It's a triumph of God in Jesus Christ over the rulers and authorities. Who are those? Well, not just the Jewish rulers and authorities, not just the Roman rulers and authorities, but over the heavenly rulers and authorities. All those powers of darkness that become complicit in our sin, that ensnare this world and make its violence so vicious and dark. On the cross of Jesus Christ, God has come to absorb evil, to attract it all to himself, and though Satan rejoices to see Jesus die at the end, he realizes Christ is victorious. Christ has triumphed over the powers of darkness and put them to shame. A public example. It's kind of an argument from the greatest to the least. If God could overcome and shame and triumph these uh, opposing generals, what could he also do in your life and in mine with the small things that hold us back? We come to the cross without pride. Come to the cross without despair. It's a place of great hope, a place of triumph. Karl Barth says, At the cross, God's Son takes to himself that which must come to the creature existing in revolt, which wants to deliver itself from its creatureliness and itself be the creator. But at the cross, God puts himself into the creature's need and does not abandon it to itself. He makes the misery of his creature his own misery so that his creature may go out freely so that the burden which it has laid upon itself may be borne, borne away, left in the tomb of Jesus Christ. That's what a cross will do in your life and in mine. We don't need a broom. A broom just moves dust around. Brooms are just for weekend projects for incompetent people like me. What we need is a cross. A cross doesn't clean the house. A cross disarms the one who stands over it and brings freedom. I don't know about you, but when you get impatient with the pace of change in your life, take heart in Pilgrim's Progress. This story happens at the very beginning of his journey and Interesting thing is Pilgrim's Progress is very different from Dante's Divine Comedy, which is a more of a Catholic perspective. In Divine Comedy, from the Catholic perspective, the character in his pilgrimage gets better and better, moving through higher degrees of glory on his way to redemption. But not so this Christian. He has a cross in his life, but he knows he encounters many more trials, and he will continue to lose the way and fall asleep and get caught in Doubting Castle and, and, and he'll make mistakes. He continues to sin. But he's growing by degrees 
up and down, forward and backwards, he's making his progress. Well, what's your growth project? In the midst of uh, economic reset, what's your spiritual reset? Maybe to find new relationship with God, to listen to him more, to draw near to him. Or maybe to engage in your neighbors, the people around you, in a new way. Friends, family members. Maybe to claim your place in this creation as its steward. Relating differently to the injustice of this world. Forget the broom. Forget the thousand self-help strategies. Forget the broken pagan spiritualities. Find a cross. Paul says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And he says here in Colossians in 2.6, As therefore you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, continue to walk in him. Walk in Jesus. He's got a cross for you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you preferred to be on the cross for us than to be God without us. For our sake, you have suffered on the cross. You have canceled the certificate of debt that we earned in our brokenness. You have disarmed the principalities and the powers of this world, that we might be set free to live in newness of life, that we might become who we originally are, renewed according to the image of our Creator day by day as we walk in the light of the cross. May we forsake our brooms and behold again and afresh the cross of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.